This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I've got a special guest for you on the podcast. His name is Samuel Say. So Samuel is a Ghanaian-Canadian who lives in Brampton. That's a city just outside of Toronto. But according to him, he is committed to addressing racial, cultural, and political issues with biblical theology in an attempt to be quick to listen and slow to speak. His work and his words have been featured on The Daily Wire, The Blaze, Relatable with Ali Best Stuckey, Founders Ministries, and a lot of other areas. But I'm just going to tell you right from the beginning, guys. I'm so thankful for the people that I've been able to talk to on this podcast. We've had so many great people that have donated their time so that you could hear from them on certain issues. They've donated the time to Undaunted Life so that these words and these ideas and these thoughts can get out to a lot of people. I just finished this interview, and this is easily one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done. Okay? I loved everything that we talked about. I'm actually going to go to my notes right here to let you know all the different things that we talked about. We talked about, you know, his kind of life statement, whatever the thing that I just read you, that he's committed to addressing racial, cultural, and political issues with biblical theology in an attempt to be quick to listen and slow to speak. But we also talked about social justice, cosmic justice, race, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, tokenism, abortion, Christian nationalism, manhood, growing up without a father, LGBTQ inside the church, and also why he immigrated from Africa to the West because the West is so crazy racist. And then we did, you know, what would you say to someone that said, which a lot of you guys enjoys, uh, you enjoy when we go into that. Guys, this was just such a fun conversation to have. I could tell within just a few minutes that this was going to be a good and fruitful conversation. And the reason is because I know you guys, I know my audience, I know what you're into. You don't want these squishy interviews. You don't want the same questions asked to the same person in the same way. This is exactly for you. You're going to want to make sure you listen to this one all the way through. And guys, I'm not going to keep them from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Samuel Say, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you, brother. It's a pleasure. Hey, I'm so excited to have you on here, and I told you this off air. You, you talk about a lot of subjects that are near and dear to my heart, and it's not because I like them, but it's because they're really, really important. But one thing that I found interesting on your website is kind of like, I guess you could call it your personal mission statement, but it's this. According to you, you are committed to addressing racial, cultural, and political issues with biblical theology in an attempt to be quick to listen and slow to speak. So let's just start there. Why is that your mission? Yeah, um, it, it started because um, so my, my blog is now six years old. I created my blog in 2015 and uh, 2014, 2015, well before you had the George Floyd uh, riots, you had initially the Ferguson riots, uh, mm-hmm. which started in um, over uh, Darren Wilson. Um uh, killing Michael Brown in in a justifiable manner, but those who may not know, Darren Wilson is, it was a cop who uh, was called to uh, scene, um, um, and Michael Brown ended up attacking him, and then he ended up um, killing um, Michael Brown in self defense. Um, nevertheless, that led to the first major major riots across America, um, and really in some cases the world um, six years ago. And a lot of my a lot of my friends um, were embracing Black Lives Matter. These would be Christians who were embracing Black Lives Matter and critical race theory. I was like, wait a minute, guys, wait a minute. Let's slow down and let's figure out what the facts are in this case. So I wanted to create my blog in, in, in response to that and really just to all the things in our culture that many people were being quick to respond to on social media um, and not choosing to be slow to speak uh, in a biblical manner um, on all these things. 
So why do you think so many people, because obviously a lot of people use the slow to speak thing just for their own purposes, but I've noticed that exact same thing. And a lot of pundits have noticed the same thing as well, that people were so ready to jump to narrative. And, and I beg my listeners, and I beg people just in general to like, can we wait five seconds for the dust to settle? Because how many times does Twitter or CNN or some random news organization jump to the conclusion that fits their narrative as opposed to waiting for the facts? Why do you feel like people are tempted to do that? Is it just because we're slaves to narrative? Um, that's a big part of it. I think for you're not going to trend on Twitter um, if you post two days after the fact. So that's right. one. You're not going to be part of the of the uh, cultural zeitgeist uh, in a sense um, if you wait for the facts. Um, so I think I think that's a big part of it. The other thing is we're being told in our culture today that um, that silence is is um, is violence or silence is com- compliance meaning that if you're quiet if you're waiting for the facts well you're in sin uh, if you're being biblical if you're being righteous if you're being holy you're in sin so a lot of people feel the need to be very quick and just to agree with whatever the cultural narrative is otherwise they'll be seen as bad people for not saying anything But why is that virtuous? I don't understand the virtue in that because, I mean, I feel like I'm old enough to remember. I'm 35. I'm old enough to remember a time whenever it was like, hey, everybody settle down. Let's kind of figure out whether it was a a fist fight in a school or, you know, something that happened in the news. Everybody was kind of waiting so that they knew how to respond. Do you feel like, because you've already mentioned it, do you feel like it is social media? Because like, you're, you're right. Like on the George Floyd stuff, uh, Samuel, I waited, I think six weeks before I talked about it on my show. I mean, a long time. And I was just absorbing all this content from people so that I could give it to my audience in a way that I knew their pastors wouldn't. Is it social media? Is that kind of like the spark for all this? Social media is a big part of it, but the ideology um, for the, of the social justice movement, I say that social media is a problem. But social justice is a much bigger problem in that it's actually really it's a it's a terrible marriage of the two. And that social media naturally leads to uh, being very quick to speak. But but uh, critical race theory, feminism, all these ideas, they, they really push that narrative or the truth does not matter. Facts do not matter. Either you are an ally with, you know, with women or in particular dealing with the uh, Black Lives Matter issue, either you are an ally of black people or you're not. So if you say you're waiting for the facts, they, they would say that, well, you're just a white person or a, a, um, a black person who's been manipulated by white people who's just trying to find an excuse to defend white supremacy. Because in their mind, of course, it's racism. Of course, it's white supremacy. Any desire to think, well, let's wait for the facts is just you trying to find a way out in their mind. Yeah, it's, it's a very nefarious worldview, but for me, and, and we're going to talk about this a lot because we're going to go into all the subjects, because again, you talk about CRT and Black Lives Matter and abortion and LGBTQ. We're going to get into all that today, mm-hmm. but really the first thing that you kind of brought up just a second ago was social justice, mm-hmm. and I feel like amongst other things that have infiltrated the church, that is one of the more nefarious things mm-hmm. because, again, it's how you categorize people because it's like, okay, social justice, but then it's like, Wait, wait, wait a minute. You're castigating other Christians as not being concerned about justice because they don't buy into your version of social justice. So I just want to let you flow a little bit because you've done a lot of writing and speaking and thinking on the subject of social justice. So why is social justice, major air quotes for those not watching us here, why is that such a problem? I'm I'm really glad you're asking that. So for many people, they might hear that and might think, well, wait a minute, what's the difference between, between social justice and justice? Well, the reason why you put um, the word social justice um, in air quotes is because 
Well, it's very different. Uh, so justice, biblical justice, is really dealing with impartiality for the most part. It's dealing with um, a biblical values, which is really affirmed by Western values in many ways. But social justice has a completely, and as you said, nefarious purpose, which is to, to promote equity, right? So whether it's on critical race theory, feminism, LGBTQ ideas, all these things is to promote equity, which I will talk about in a second, is very different from what people think uh, it really means. Equity and equality are, very, are two different things. But really, social justice is really promoting injustice. It's promoting LGBTQ ideas, abortion. I always say that people oftentimes about uh, wanting to uh, have uh, social justice for preborn babies. No, 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 no. They're already having that, right? That social justice for, for preborn babies is abortion because really it's promoting equity for women. It's, it's feminism. But human rights for babies is by is wanting to end abortion. Those are two very different things. Um, um, human rights is affirming justice Social justice affirms um, uh, injustice, but unfortunately, in the church, it's been very much embraced because a lot of people. Uh, and I've said this before, in that um, growing up for a lot of young men, we were not, and, and for young women too, we were not taught biblical justice. We were not taught how to understand a biblical worldview. So many of us were raised in public school system, or if you know, or afterward, we went to uh, college and. Well, the world, they know how important it is to have a worldview. So they were teaching us how to think about the culture, politics, justice in a very ungodly way, of course. But that's where many of us were really uh, um, forced to uh, consider what we think about the world. So now, um, last year, when you had the George Floyd uh, issue, you had many Christians who were unprepared for how to understand these issues, but the world was ready, was ready to tell them. So... I think um, the reason why the church today is embracing these ideas is because, unfortunately, for the last 20 years, we've not been addressing this issue at all. I think part of it has to do, and this is really goes back to your mission, is a complete lack of, of biblical literacy. How yes. many people would opt in to saying, I am a Christian, that do not crack their Bible, that if they were to go find their Bible, they would have to blow the dust off the top of it because that's how much it gets used. But yeah. I will say this, uh, and I just heard this today on, on uh, or just here recently from John Cooper, John Cooper, uh, my buddy, mm -hmm. the lead singer of Skillet. He was talking about these types of things and talking about how his his parents' generation, they were the ones that gave up in the fight in the yeah. school systems yeah. to keep a biblical ethic inside the school systems yeah. because they said, okay, okay, okay. We'll just let the schools teach facts and data, right? Yeah. No yeah. worldview, no Christian worldview, no nothing worldview. And wouldn't you know it, they're just shocked when humanism and yeah. this secular ideology creeps yeah. in. And now we have all these downstream consequences of the secular nature being taught to our kids. But you're absolutely right. But I want to go back to something because you, you keyed in on equity, but I want you to go a little bit further because James mm -hmm. 2, the sin of partiality. Yep. Most Christians don't know anything about the sin of partiality. They yep. don't know how how that's why we, we say to people, this is why it's bad to be racist, yes. not just because of, you know, it's going to be bad for you if you get canceled from your job or canceled from something on Twitter, but it's bad for you because it's sinful. So I want yes. you to flow a little bit more on that. And I, again, I, I'm enjoying this uh, conversation a lot. Yeah, it's good. We're, we're not even 10 minutes in. It's going well. <laughs> I was just about, before you mentioned that, I was going to say one of the biggest problems with um, biblical literacy is that we don't understand what racism is because we don't understand what partiality is. I did a talk. Um, Earlier this year, actually, at a Christian, at a so-called Christian uh, university, and they ended up canceling me 
um, because they were saying I was a racist because I defined. <laughs> yeah, yeah of course. All, basically an all white school. I don't care about people's skin color, but, you know, given that I find it hilarious that they were calling me a racist, uh, the one black guy coming there, they invited to come talk about <laughs> racism. But anyway, um, I because I said, look, racism is simply partiality against someone because of their skin color. When you say it that way, it's not popular in the world. But biblically, it means that anyone can be racist against black people, white people. Like critical race theory is just partiality. But also, abortion is also partiality. Abortion is saying that you're going to favor women against their babies. It's so almost all the issues of the world today is really dealing with partiality. So it's crucial that we understand that. So partiality, again, is simply showing favoritism against someone or for someone because of something about them, whether they are women, whether they are, um, whether they are, they are black, white men, whatever it might be. And equity is really saying uh, that it's okay to show partiality against somebody else in order to bring somebody else up. It's very evil. So for example, in his book, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, I, I call it How to Be a Racist. Uh, sure. But it's uh, by one of the leading uh, critical race theories today. Yeah, Ibram X. Kendi. Yeah, and in his book, he says uh, basically um, um, that um, racial, racial discrimination is good if it leads to racial um, equity, but it's bad if it leads to racial inequity. Those are his exact words. What he is saying is racism, partiality is okay if it leads to equity, meaning if the racism leads to equality of outcome in society, which is, again, a very evil idea that partiality is okay so long as it produces essentially socialism and communism in society. There's nothing more racist than being told to look at somebody based on their immutable characteristics and to be able to fill in the blanks of their life. Because yeah. I grew up, I mean, accidentally, I grew up in an incredibly diverse community in Southwest, Southwest Oklahoma. Like mm. I, I went back and I saw my sixth grade uh, class picture. Now the 20 kids in the class, I think more than uh, over half were not white. Now, as a kid, I wasn't thinking, wow, look at my black friends and look at my Mexican friends and look at my Indian friends. I was just like, look at my friends. Right. But now we are told and we are teaching our children. Hey, 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 no, you are an oppressor. Why? Yeah. Because look at you. Look at the level of melanin that you have in your skin. Now, that person over there, he's oppressed or she's oppressed. And, you know, he has actually two levels of oppression because he's gay and also he's black or whatever. And we're told to do these things. And I don't understand how people can get away with this worldview because the nefarious thing is, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, painting with a broad brush here, they had their favorite injustice to talk about. And that was financial injustice, yeah. right? That was their favorite one. But now we're moving towards this this, this movement to where it's like, no, 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 we have to separate people based on immutable characteristics. It's like, how did we get here? I feel like it's a downstream consequence, but also, or out, you, you look like you want to hop back in. Go ahead. Yeah. So I actually think things haven't changed. I think you're right in that so-called financial injustice was a big uh, issue. I think it is. I, 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 I don't think it's a coincidence that when you had, uh, I'm forgetting the uh, Wall Street issue um, 10 years ago, what was it called? Uh, the, the Wall Street uh, oh, Occupy Wall Street? Occupy Wall Street, yes. Yeah. It's not a coincidence that within a couple of years after that, 
That's when you had the Black Lives Matter riots. They're all mm-hmm. very much intertwined. In fact, many of the heroes mentioned that they were influenced by um, the uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement because they were really all based in Marxism. So, critical race theory. There's a there's a book by one of the, one of the founders of critical race theory named um, Charles um, W. Uh, Mills, and he says that essentially that um, there was one radical idea. Uh, by Marx, which is that society is really made up of a, uh, the real issue in society is the class issue. And he is saying, no, as a critical race theorist, his radical idea is, no, that society, the real conflict is really race. The point is this, is that you're right that for a long time, we're focusing on the so-called financial injustice. That's not change. They're just now using race as an issue to push that same agenda. Because they know that in our culture today, the class issue is not as uh, as appealing to people. Uh, but if you mention the racial issue, you have a lot of people being more uh, more vulnerable and more um, more um, unaware and being able to embrace these ideas. Because the average person wouldn't embrace Marxism just from um, hearing it out, because they know the history behind it. But critical race theory, it sounds good because there's a white guilt. In there. Yeah, you can sneak it in. You can sneak exactly. it in a little bit. Don't you agree with this? Don't you agree with this? And if you get people to agree to enough things, it's like, well, guess what? You're on our side now. Exactly. Now we're the ones wearing masks and, you know, not COVID masks, but we're in black masks to cover our faces and we throw Molotov cocktails at police cars and all that. But but one thing as you were talking, it reminded me of really one of my favorite authors and maybe the most important economist that we have that's still alive, and that's Thomas Sowell. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called The Quest for Cosmic Justice, right? Yeah. I think I have the title right. Yeah. One thing that I think about all the time with these people that are maybe Christians, but a lot of people that have a secular worldview is there's no concept of cosmic justice for them, right? Because if there's nothing after this life, you know, if I get attacked by a pack of wolves or get hit by a bus or shoot myself in the head today, the lights just go out, right? And then they put me in the ground and eventually I'm worm food, right? If that's all there is, we have to fight for, for justice on this planet as fervently as we possibly can. You know, I just did a, an episode uh, a while back on the death penalty and I talked about even Christians that are so anti the death penalty, even though God's law tells us like a life for life. If you take a life in, in front of witnesses and all that, like it from your life that will be required of you. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we don't have this idea that there, there can be justice as somewhere else. So yes. we have to fight for it here. Yes. Is that something that you feel like you see a lot in some of the work that you do? Absolutely. Um, I did a uh, interview with the Daily Wire um, a couple of months ago, and then they asked me about uh, wh- why is leftism incompatible with Christianity? And one of the things I said is that leftism, um, which basically also includes social justice, critical race theory, all that, it's that it is fundamentally a rejection of what the Bible says about his, about the past and the future. And what I mean is that they really say, what well, has God really said? when it comes to uh, justice. So they, really, they they deny human nature. They deny that we are by nature an evil people. Therefore, by nature, we should not be, be pursuing power. Um, and that we are all evil. There's whether you are rich or poor, whether you are a man or a woman, whether you are uh, white or black, we are by nature evil. Uh, and therefore we should not be trying to pit people, people against each other. That's the, them re- rejecting the past. The future aspect is what you mentioned about cosmic justice. We, we know that there is a heaven and that God is the judge of the universe and that there will not be a single injustice that will not be addressed. Either it will be addressed through hell or it's been addressed on the cross. We know that and we have a peace. So we know that, it, uh, that while we are committed 
to pursuing justice, where the Bible tells us to hate evil, um, love good, and establish justice in the courts. We know that and we pursue that. But in the end, we know that there will never be a perfect justice in society until Christ himself comes and returns to establish justice here. However, they do not believe in heaven. They don't care about heaven. Therefore, in their atheistic view, they've created a utopia where they think that no, they have to bring a so-called heaven on earth because they are the gods. They are the God who sits on the throne that must um, execute justice. Otherwise, there won't be uh, justice. So what you're saying is very, very important in that our theology is, 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 is the basis for our worldview. But for them, their theology is, of course, also their basis for their worldview as well, which is that they are the gods who must establish a utopia um, in this society. Which I think is another commercial for the fact that we as Christians, we should undergird, undergird our worldview with theological truth, with biblical truth. Because the problem that I see with so many people, and I see this a lot with the abortion issue, which we'll talk about a little bit later, is Christians get tripped up so easily, mm -hmm. right? They're like, oh, someone will ask them, hey, are you pro-life? Yeah. Well, what about in the case of rape and incest? Huh? Yeah. And then all of a sudden they're like... Uh, well, I guess it's okay to kill the baby then because that sounds horrible, right? They don't have a solid foundation. They're trying to plant their feet in midair. But mm -hmm. I, I do want to get more specifically into the area of race. There was a really interesting quote that you had from one of your blogs that I want to get a little bit more insight into. But here's the quote. How do you make racism acceptable again? It's simple deceive and manipulate people into rioting over quote-unquote systemic racism. Then teach them to be silent or approving of racial slurs against black people like Tim Scott. He's a black U.S. senator from the United States. In other words, if you want racism to thrive, call everything racist except for real racism. So obviously, being an American and paying attention to the news cycle, I know that when Tim Scott pops up on on Twitter, it's going to be a lot of people that are calling him an Uncle Tom, like un Uncle Tim's uh, Uncle Tom Scott or whatever they call him or something like that. I know those things are going to happen, which is blatant racism. You have Larry Elder running for uh, California govern governor. He's you know someone's wearing a monkey mask and throws an egg at him. If that had happened to Barack Obama, it would still be the number one news story today, years and years later, right? But I guess. There's so much gaslighting going on and social media companies, big tech is, is involved in that big media, mainstream media is involved in that. Mm -hmm. But there are so many people that are okay with racism as long as it's perpetrated by people that are wearing a blue tie or yes. people that they like. Yeah. So give me a little bit more of, of an insight as to kind of why you framed it the way you did. Yeah. Um, you know, again, as I mentioned, um, one of the top selling books on racism over the last two, three years, especially last year after the George Floyd riots, uh, is How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. And um, I'm not kidding when I say this. That's maybe the most racist book I've ever read. And it's really concerning when perhaps, the, and I've read a lot of racist books, including from like white supremacists and everything else. So when that book, which is the, the one of the top selling books on, on racism, happens to be the most richest book I've ever read in my life. That's scary to me. And that's because we have redefined racism. And in, in basically now, racism basically now means if you disagree with the left, that's basically what it is. You know, if you were against um, the, uh, what is it? Um, the long word, I always struggle with this word, but if you disague with the infrastructure bill, now you are yeah. a racist, right? In the US, yeah. right? If you disagree with almost anything now from Joe Biden or the Democrats, you are a racist. 
But if you are just a Christian or you believe in biblical values, if you believe that, and this is true, if you really believe that you should live in a colorblind society, they really say that's racist. Now, we all know what that means. We don't, we're not saying that we're not seeing color. Of course we are seeing color, we're, that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made and we should appreciate that. What, what, colorblind, uh, what colorblind ideology means is that we're saying we don't want to treat people based on their skin color. The civil rights um, um, thinking from Martin Luther King Jr., right? But they've redefined racism, and now what is actually racism is good, and what's not racism is bad. So because of that, people like me or a Tim Scott or a, a Vadi Bokum or a Thomas Sowell, because we are not leftists, it's okay for them to, to use... Um, you know, I, I, you know, to call us a coon and Uncle Tom, to call us traitors, to call us a number of things. That's really them judging us because of our skin color and them thinking the worst of us because of our skin color, which is, of course, racist. And it's OK for them to do that because they're doing so in the name of being anti-racist or in the name of being leftist. And because we are not anti-racist. Um, in the critical race thinking uh, meaning of, of that term, or because we're not leftists, it's okay for them to do that because, again, it's really all about them pushing leftism and hating conservatism or hating Christianity. It's so shocking to me as well how how easily people are taken into that because if you call Larry Elder the black face of white supremacy, what and that's your headline. How horrific of a thing is that to say about somebody? Because I, I got to tell you, like if, if people claim that I'm racist or I'm sexist or any of those things, I'm like, go ahead. That means I'm saying something that's correct because you yeah. disagree with it, and I already know your worldview. But yeah. to claim somebody is racist. Yep. without any evidence to that is one of the grossest and most horrible things I feel like you could do aside from claiming somebody has sexually assaulted somebody without any evidence. Mm -hmm. But again, all this comes from a worldview. It does not come from a God-based worldview. It comes from Karl Marx. That's how we get critical theory. That's how we specifically get critical race theory, how we get feminism, all these things. But specifically, let's talk about critical race theory. Yeah. In the United States, of course, right now, that's on everybody's tongues because everybody's thinking about critical race theory in the schools. The leftists are saying, no, there's no critical race theory in the schools because the class isn't called critical race theory 101, even though critical race elements are a part of the curriculum. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. You actually have spoken a lot about this and you've done a lot of definitional work on this. So give our audience an idea, if anybody doesn't have a clue by now, what is critical race theory, but also how is it being used and propagated propagated in a Western context? Okay. Um, so critical race theory is, is, a, is, a, is a very complex ideology, but what it's basically saying, it's that it's saying that Western society is built by white people for white people. And that uh, because of that, it excludes non-white people from Western society. And therefore, it's saying that white people are naturally or culturally racist always. So if you're a white person, by existing as a so-called privileged member in this Western society, which is built for, in their mind, white people, you are a racist unless you divest from your whiteness, which means that you... Uh, confess being being racist, and then you try hard to be an ally with black people, which basically means that you try to abolish the Western system, you try to abolish America's founding principles, and then you attempt um, to be anti-racist. That's very important. Um, when I talk about being anti-racist, 
what they really, really mean is being anti-America. Now, now that may seem like a buzzword for many people, but this is truly, I've read all their founding, all their founding um, books and everything else. That's really what it comes down to. Critical race theory is really about uh, not just a, a social, cultural ideology. It's fundamentally a legal framework, which is saying that America's legal principles, America's founding principles are uh, irredeemably racist and they need to be abolished. And the thing about critical race theory is they kind of have their own uh, brown shirts. They have Black Lives Matter. And so yeah. they are basically the, the the roving army that's going to get this to kind of be a part of, of what we have in our common culture. Yeah. And Black Lives Matter uses violent threats. They use threats of cancellation and all these different things and branding people. And one of the maybe strongest things that they can throw at you, aside from a brick, is the claim that you are being racist, right, yeah. as a company or as an individual. Mm-hmm. But- the problem that I feel like with Black Lives Matter is is maybe the biggest problem is that that ideology has infiltrated the church. Even mm-hmm. people like Matt Chandler, even people that are like strong, like foundational type people, mm-hmm. they're being tempted into posting the black square on Instagram, right? They're being tempted to being say, to say it should be okay for us to say Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. The problem has been from the beginning is not the sentence Black yep. Lives Matter, because any Christian on the planet would say, of course, they're made in the image of God. They have the Imago Dei. Of course, Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. But now that entire phrase has been co-opted by a group that is using it for non-Christian means. Yep. So I guess, what are your thoughts on Black Lives Matter just in general, but specifically how that organization, not this, not the phrase, but how that organization is infiltrating what a lot of, I guess, woke Christians are thinking today? Yeah. So I actually wouldn't say that the organization has co-opted the phrase they created a phrase in a very cunning manner because they know, um, being as satanic as they are, they know that um, that phrase is so it's so it's so good. It's so cunning because who can really say that black lives don't matter? As you said, everyone does. Mm-hmm. So by by coming up with that term, with that phrase, it, they make it extremely difficult for someone to reject them. But look, I don't use a word, that term at all because I've, I, as you implied, I've said that, well, God's words are better, that I can say that, man, we are all made in the image of God, that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, and, I, and I trust, and I, I like God's words better than I like, uh, you know, uh, some people's words, especially Marxist. But I think the reason why they've been able to infiltrate the church is because that phrase sounds so good and a lot of people are afraid. But also, to be frank, um, a lot of pastors seem to be more concerned about wanting to protect their ministry than wanting mm-hmm. to protect the church. One of the things that I've noticed, uh, which has been honestly, it's been encouraging, but yet also sad, is that uh, in Virginia, for example, with the, um, I think what, two months ago, or maybe, la- I'm forgetting, maybe last month, when you had the uh, the election. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, the election was really won for the Republicans, in part because you had a lot of uh, mothers who were going to schools and they were angrily saying, no, you will not teach critical race theory to my children. You will not teach my black children that they, that they are oppressed just because they're black. And you will not teach my white children that they, that they are oppressed just because they're white. But you had Christians, especially Christian men or Christian pastors being completely quiet or embracing um, critical race theory because Black Lives Matter has done a great job of, now by a great job, I don't mean a good job, I just mean great in terms of right. pushing their agenda into trying to silence the church, into trying to tell people that, look, either you agree with us or you are a racist. And um, a, a big part of that is because, again, the, the the phrase is very cunning. But as a whole movement, I think a lot of pastors, a lot of Christians are afraid of offending uh, black Christians, which is actually racist, right? Uh, there was a um, there was a um, a tweet by 
not a tweet, sorry, uh, a, a talk uh, by uh, Ligon Duncan, a man that I respect. But he was saying how um, a lot of his black friends tell him that they don't trust him. And that's because people who look like him have hurt people who look like them. And he's like, yeah, he understands. I'm like, wait a minute. What if a, what if a white person said to you, you know what, uh, my some of my relatives were killed by uh, black people, and therefore now I don't trust any black person anymore. They'll say, well, hey, uh, we're sorry about you know that history. We're sorry about that pain, but that's racist. That's partiality. You cannot right. do that. But again, because a lot of pastors or white uh, Christians seem to be very much afraid of uh, being against Black Lives Matter or being against critical race theory or saying the truth to black people because they might offend them, they didn't disagree with some of these ideas. But like I said, this is actually all racism because love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. True love is okay with offending someone because you know what is best for them is for them to agree with God. It's for them to love God, not for them to love you or like you. But we're not we're not allowed to offend anybody, Samuel. I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know if the news has gotten to you. If you offend somebody, that is the worst thing you could possibly do. But if you look at all the issues that we're having in the church, and yes, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but the, the epidemic of abortion inside yeah. the church. A lot of people inside the church have abortions. A lot of people inside the church get divorces. A lot of people, and I, I'll, I'll use the, the divorce one here really quick. I've been the one guy standing on an island by myself begging my friend who's considering getting an, uh, you know, a divorce to not do it. It's like, mm. you made a covenant before God, my brother. I'm putting relational chips in the middle. And so many guys are just concerned. It's like, what's the worst thing that can happen? He punches you in the face and doesn't talk to you anymore. Like, is that worth not standing up for biblical truth? What exactly are you talking about? Because that pastor in that moment, they're trying to agree with the, the cultural zeitgeist at that moment so that people don't get mad at them. It's exactly what you said. But I don't understand how we've gotten to this point where the highest virtue you can have is to be a nice guy that doesn't ever offend anybody. And, oh. and I don't want to get into the manhood thing, but yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I I, I, I can't stand it. It is we the, the word let's nuance this, which really means let's let's make this uh, less clear. That's literally what the word means. <laughs> right. Let's make it more confusing to understand. Exactly. Because then we don't want to offend anybody because we we think see it always amazes me christ is the most loving he is love christ is love he is he is gentle he is patient he is truthful they crucified him <laughs> you, you you cannot like are we trying to uh uh our righteous christ you can't if you truly love someone if you are gentle you're patient you're truthful if you are truly being like christ you will offend people it is the nature of biblical theology is that it's an of, it's offensive to Christ, to to uh, unbelievers and to Christians. Look, I get offended by my pastor sermon every Sunday. <laughs> and I, and I <laughs> That's a good pastor. That. <laughs> exactly. I thank God for that because I need to be offended so I can repent. That's the nature of a Christian life that we are always being offended because we are sinful people and then we are repenting. But unfortunately, many of us think that we are more, we are better than Christ in that well we can we can somehow love people with the truth without offending them, which is impossible. Now, of course, we don't want to be needlessly sorry, needlessly offensive. We don't want to be out there just trying to offend people. But if you are patient and you are telling the truth, it was true of Christ, it was true of the apostles, it was true of every single Christian generation, um, except for in some ways ours, at least in the West, where because we've been so afraid, let me down. Because we've been so afraid of speaking the truth, we've been uh, we've been um, trying to uh, guard ourselves from being um, um, from being um, you know called out. But the thing is, well, as, as the Bible says. 
everybody who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. And that includes being called uh, offensive, it includes being called a bigot, being called a racist, being called all these things. And I think the thing that people need to understand uh, more so than maybe anything else is if you are getting hit with slings and arrows, that means you're doing something correctly. Again, I'm not the first person to point this out by a long shot, but if you're not getting any blowback anywhere in your life, whether in person or on social media, anywhere else, it's because you're probably not living in the biblical truth that you claim to believe in. And that's one thing I told someone the other day is they're like, they kind of asked me, they're like, why do you say such incendiary things? And, and why do you say them in the way that you do? Why do you get so, so passionate? And I was like, because I'm always shocked at how little the slings and arrows hurt. <laughs> like it, it just doesn't bother me that much because it's like, it's not fun. I, I prefer not to be doing those things, but you know, it, it's not that big a deal, especially since we know that we win in the end, that should be the thing we should, we should look at all of this as like, Hey, that we're being like Christ in this moment by taking this. And, uh, you know, just fortunately for us, we don't have to die on a cross. But but one thing that's important uh, to talk about here, Samuel, something I've thought about a lot, because I think about this with guys like you, with guys like you've already talked about, like Vody Bauckham or Daryl Harrison or Virgil Walker. Mm. The one thing that I, I don't know if I want to say, like, I'm afraid of it because we, we just got through talking about being fearful or whatever, but I'm I'm cautious about tokenism. With, with guys like you. And again, I'm putting all you guys in a category, which is super racist. But as a Christ, a black person that is a Christian, that has conservative values, those types of things, it seems like it y'all could be very easily you know caricatured by the left, but mm -hmm. taken advantage of by the right. Because it's like, oh man, you know, there's something in the news that seems kind of racist. Let's bring Samuel on to talk <laughs> about it to kind of provide cover for us. You know what I mean? Like, and again, caricature one side, you know, using it on the other side. But what are your thoughts on that? Because for me, I want to hear from you yep. when something racist happens. I want to hear from Vody. I want to hear from Larry Elder. I want to hear from these people. I don't want to hear from somebody that's just like making it up as they go along. But do yep. you have any concerns over tokenism? Um, that's a that's an incredible question. Um, I actually don't. But what I will say is this. I imagine there are some people who are happy to promote guys like myself or Vody. Uh, who's a hero, and as are Vir um, Virgil and Daryl, because of their cowardice. That's the problem. If if a, if a white believer or a white conservative is afraid to speak the truth, and therefore they say, well, you know what? I'll let a black person do it. That way I won't get the blowback. I don't have an issue with them promoting me or anybody else. I have an issue with the reason why. And that's my uh, my biggest concern there wouldn't be the tokenism. It would be their cowardice. So if someone is doing that and I say, hey, <laughs> you have a mouth the way I do. You have you have a mind the way I do. You can speak the truth because here's the thing. It's actually not that easy for me to speak on it because I'm still being called a racist. I, I was truly canceled uh, by university because I spoke out against this stuff. Now, in some ways, it's easier for me to talk about it. But I'll still be called names as well, too. So that's the issue there is, is, is the cowardice. The other thing is this. I think there is something to be said about being um, being wise as serpents and being as innocent um, as uh, as doves. Hopefully I didn't butcher that that that, uh, that text. But um, and what I mean is this. There's nothing wrong with using the ideas of the of the culture against them. What I mean is they talk about listening to black voices. They talk about how, you know, essentially black people have a monopoly on the truth. 
Well, I think there is a wisdom or on racism, there is a wisdom in saying, okay, well then we're going to have black people then go against what you're saying and see how you respond to that. And I think for many, many people, and I know, I know, I know, some, I know some people like this who were initially embracing critical race theory, when they see how some of their friends were treating me, they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute here. Who is the racist? Right. So I think by elevating um, certain black, you know, Christian voices like Avadi or Daryl or Virgil, it it, it it tends to expose the hypocrisy and the um, and the racism of the culture. So I think it depends on the motives. Um, I don't have an issue at all with someone saying, you know what, given what's happening in the culture, let's have, and that's not because I want to promote myself. It's not that I, I'm, the other guys I've mentioned are much better than me. They're much wiser than I am. Um, but I think that um, just, I, I know it's an accusation um, of the left, but they're only saying that because they are afraid that they, because let's face it, by their own worldview, it's very difficult for a white leftist or white critical race theorists um, to really defend their words against me. So, for example, in in, um, in her book, Robin D'Angelo, talking about white fragility, uh, she essentially says that, well, if anybody calls you a racist, don't defend yourself. If you do so, you're being fragile and you're being racist. So then, so, so then I said, okay, I'm saying as a black person that her book is racist and she can't defend herself. She right. has to agree, right? And she can't say anything to that. So I think, again, that's using their foolishness against them through people like me. When you're talking about cowardice, one of the things I thought about is like cowardly men that make their woman say something, right? They're going to make their wife like yeah. raise their hand and say something because they're like, well, they probably can't punch her in the face, but they might punch me in the face. But you know, you kind of see what I'm saying. Like they'll yeah. hide behind their spouse and do all those different things, but it is a different level of cowardice. But one thing that I tell people, because you know, and I want to ask you about the abortion thing here in just a second, mm -hmm. but when people say like, no fetus or sorry, like no, no uterus, no opinion, like something like that, or you're not black. You can't yeah. possibly understand their lived experience. Yeah. I've been reliably informed that I can just believe I am something different than I am biologically. Exactly. So I would just ask that person, attack the worldview. I tell people go on offense, say, Hey, uh, I, I would like to identify as a woman for the remainder of this conversation that we have about the subject of abortion. So now can I have an opinion? Right. Because they're not going to really like that very much, but you're attacking a worldview. But let's go ahead and get into abortion because I've been teeing it up enough. Uh, this was a tweet that you wrote. I don't know when you wrote it. It doesn't really matter because it's, it's evergreen. But I want to get a little bit more context on this quote. One of the biggest indictments against the social justice movement or the identity politics politics movement within evangelicalism today is that it hasn't produced a greater passion against the biggest human rights violation of our time, abortion. In fact, it's producing more apathy and support for abortion. Again, you're calling out the church here. You're calling out these things. And it goes back to what I said earlier. Most Christians don't have a solid pro-life foundation where they're they're basing what they're doing on the Bible or on truth or anything like that. So when culture gives them an argument that pushes back even ever so slightly on their pro-life worldview, they just fall completely to pieces. Yeah. But why say something like that? Because I'm sure that offended a lot of people where you're like, surely not. We're just supporting abortion in the church all of a sudden. Yeah. But it's true. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 this, this is something that's been really troubling me for the last number of years. Um, a lot of people that I know, um, including some prominent people, um, that I don't know personally, but I've been see, I've been reading some of their work and stuff and they've absolutely shown more apathy towards abortion. And in some cases, more support for abortion over the last number of years because of embraced critical race theory. I'll say it frankly, the BD, um, you know, who is, you know, 
fairly prominent evangelical, uh, says that, well, abortion isn't the biggest issue in America. Uh, it's actually racism. Now, mind you, um, abortion kills about a million babies, including 300,000 black babies a year. And he is saying that supposedly racism is a bigger issue, not murder against little children who cannot defend themselves. Okay. There are many people like Jamar Tisby, actually, who was a friend, of, a good friend of his, and he's become a prominent voice in the critical race theory or anti-racism movement, who um, has pretty... He, he's careful not to, to so-called nuance the issue, but he is in support of critical uh, in support of abortion. Uh, he defends abortion as being a complicated issue. Uh, no, it's not. Abortion is murder. There are a number of these woke critical race theorists within the church who have absolutely embraced uh, abortion. Um, and then that's just the people who are more supportive of it. Then you have people like you know, Thabiti, like I mentioned earlier, who are more apathetic. See, last year was a very fascinating year for me. It proved everything that I already knew, which was uh, I, I'm a pro-life advocate, and I've been trying to get Christians and uh, churches to become much more vocal on the abortion issue. I, I mentioned in a tweet um, about a week or so ago that 20% um, of women who get an abortion go to church at least once a week. People couldn't believe it. That means that at least 200,000 babies killed every year in America are from people who go to church at least once a week. And yet, when I was trying to get churches and people involved in abortion, they're saying, well, you know, we have other things to do. We don't have time. It's difficult. But then last year, every church came out of the woodwork. And was talking about how much they hate racism and they're they're against systemic racism and all this stuff. So apparently they had the time. Apparently they had the time. But that's because they thought that was important. But the abortion issue, which kills about a million George Floyds. Now, what I mean by that is George Floyd is a human. Now, I don't want to get too controversial here. Oh, I go for it. We're already way past that, okay. man. Just go for it. I think the Derek, I, I think Derek Chauvin, I think the Derek Chauvin thing was a was a terrible, terrible situation in terms of look. Obviously, I don't want anyone to die. Um, nevertheless, uh, there was no evidence of racism um, there at all. In fact, it's at the very least uh, very disputable that it was actually Derek Chauvin who ended up um, killing him. Um, there are a number of factors, sort of drug overdose, a number of different things. Um, nevertheless. Um, if we care about George Floyd because he's a human, well, okay, there are a million George, there are a million people who are being killed, except they're not criminals like George Floyd, except they are completely defenseless and they're actually being murdered. And we don't care. If we're being honest, as a church, we don't care that much. In fact, it's mostly the Catholics who are dealing with this issue, not the church. Mm -hmm. It's mostly also women. I know this because I was one of the very few women, uh, few men. I almost said women. I was one yeah. of the very few men who was involved. And I'll say this: um, I know this, this is appeal to um, appeal to um, um, you know to, to, the, to the audience. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but in Toronto there was a man uh, who round who roundhouse kicked a pro life uh, woman um, two or three years mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. I actually I actually know that person. I was doing pro life work in, in Toronto. And he actually tried to attack one of my female co um, co um, uh, colleagues, and I ended up pulling him and I put him down and um, kind of roughed him up a little bit. Um, but, you know, I, I mentioned that because not only, not only do we not have enough Christians dealing with this issue, we don't have enough men either. And yet, last summer, you had all these men, all these Christian men at these, at these riots or these protests. 
And it it, 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 it it boggles my mind. So going back to what you said, absolutely, critical race theory, social justice, all this stuff is leading to more apathy and more support for abortion. And it's breaking my heart because, uh, in fact, abortion is still killing uh, over the last couple of years since COVID has actually gone up higher around the world. So it, it, it truly disturbs me that you, you, you have all these churches and all these Christians talking about how much they hate racism and all that, which honestly, many of them, I'm sure they do hate racism, but for some of them, they really don't. They're anti-racist, right? Uh, but then when it comes to the abortion issue, which is killing so many black babies, and of course, different kinds of babies, they don't care. I think every situation requires you to draw a line in the sand. So if you're dating somebody and you're like, okay, here's my line in the sand. If the person goes beyond this line, we're just not compatible. Like yeah. we're, we're not going to work. And I think you're newly engaged. So I think you understand where some of those lines are. Right. And congratulations on that. But also the, the thing that I don't understand, and, and it's good to get passionate and got, believe me, I've gone way on the passionate side on the abortion topic, especially on this podcast, even recently. I don't understand, and I'm saying this as controlled as I possibly can, how abortion is not the line for people inside the church. How is that not the line? Okay, because you're right. Racism, bad, horrible. And, and someone even said this on Twitter. I forget who even said it, but they said the Roe v. Wade decision is the worst decision in the history of the United States. That includes all the ones that basically said black people weren't people that, yep. that said, you know, all those other different decisions that I can't think of off the, the top of my head that were, were horribly racist and evil in their intent, not just in their result, but in their intent. Mm -hmm. But no, these people weren't dying. Yeah. And I know that that's, that's horrible to say, but I bet you if you asked slaves in any context in the history of the planet, whether they would rather to be a slave that's alive or a dead person, I would right. say the majority of them would probably say they'd rather be alive. Now, again, I'm painting with a broad brush here, having never been a slave myself, right? And the overwhelming majority of people listening to this have also never been a slave. Yep. But how can that not be the line, Samuel? Yep. I don't understand it. Why won't these men reach down the front of their pants, realize yep. they still have a pair and say, no, this is an abomination. Can yep. you imagine what would happen if Christians hit the streets like yeah. people did for the George Floyd riots last year, but yeah. only for the sake of the unborn, right? Yeah. We're sitting here hoping and praying and we're grasping our Bibles, hoping that Roe v. Wade is overturned by this case that's in Mississippi. But what these idiots don't understand is if Roe v. Wade is overturned, it just goes back to the states. Yeah. And there's about 30 states out of the 50 that are ready to say, yeah, abortion for any reason, for whatever reason. And by the way, taxpayer, you got to pay for it. Exactly. And again, I'm getting excited. This is my podcast, but I'm interviewing you. I want to give you a chance to get in no, here. Why I isn't that the line? I love it. Um, man, it's, you mentioned something about, um, and you're completely right, about how, you know, the slaves uh, would much rather be, um, be, you know, slaves than to be dead. Well, not just that. They get tortured to death, right? Like abortion. See, I one of the things that we would do, um, um, we, we would do in our pro-life work is that we would show people what happens to babies when they get aborted. We would show them the pictures. And it shocks people. When people would see it, about 70% um, of them would actually become more pro-life just by seeing the image. Because people don't realize, we've sanitized abortion, a woman's right to choose. No, it is it is a horrific way to die. A horrific way. These babies get torn apart limb by limb. Their skulls get crushed. It is absolutely horrific. We, I mean, even even back in the day when uh, when there were very harsh penalties. Uh, now I'm completely for the death penalty. Nevertheless, uh, back in the day, you had some very harsh t torture. Sometimes they didn't have it even as bad as these babies do in a womb, 
right? And again, they're not just be, they're not just be, you know, they're not dying. They're being murdered, and yet many of us still don't care. You mentioned the slaves. Well, um, it, about I think roughly two hundred thousand slaves were brought from or forced from uh, Africa to America. Well, that's again two hundred thousand is one too many, but in America there have been twenty million black babies murdered. 20 million since Roe v. Wade. Overall, it's 50 million for, for all babies. It's horrific, horrific. But unfortunately, again, we don't care as much as we should. So it, it, it's really disturbing that you would have such an injustice, the worst human rights violation in the history of the world. And unfortunately, many of us are still sleeping all right. We're still sleeping fine, knowing this is happening, including inside our churches. I, would, I was just jotting this down as you were talking. I think the problem, Samuel, is if we actually cared, I mean, we, the collective we of, of the people inside the church, if we actually cared, guess what? It's going to require something of us. Mm. And we are inherently lazy and we're fat in this modern context of, you know, hard times make strong men, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, weak men make hard times. We're in the weak men making hard times thing because guess what? If you actually believe that what was happening in an abortion facility was murder, you wouldn't stand for that because guess what? If you felt like sending your kid to daycare, which my kid is at daycare right now, if if people were just just getting slaughtered and pulled their limbs being pulled off their bodies and their heads being crushed at daycare. Don't you think some men would get together in their trucks and drive down to the local daycare and prevent that from happening? Yeah. Right. That doesn't yeah. mean kill all the teachers. That doesn't mean kill all the abortion doctors, but it does mean to kill the business yes. because abortion is big business and a lot of people are profiting off of it. And we're just kind of like, Oh yeah, it's bad. It's so yeah. unfortunate, but what are you going to do? It's like, no, 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 It's not, Oh, they're painting the church walls this color. And I don't exactly prefer that. That's not what we're talking about here. Again, it's an issue that I just, it's just unfathomable to me that more people aren't, aren't, you know, fired up about it, but go ahead. I've said this before and I like saying it a lot because I think it, it, it goes to show people our blindness and our hardness on this issue. I've said to people that if you, if we learned that a million two-year-olds were being killed every year, what would you react? What would you do to that? What, I mean, we would be furious. The church would be, would be, uh, you'd be, you'd be, we'd be addressing this every week. We'd be out there, never mind just a summer of protest. There'd be protest every, uh, mm -hmm. we, we would be absolutely committed to ending this. Well, what's the difference between that and those same two-year-olds, but just two years before, before that, them being uh, pre-born in the womb? What's the difference? They're just as they human. Right. They the difference is, is we believe the cultural lie. We have believed this cultural lie that, hey, you know, Roe v. Wade is just kind of the law of land. It is what it is. Kind of like with gay marriage. Oh, we're not allowed to talk about how that's immoral anymore because, you know, Obergefell, it's legal now. Ha <laughs> ha, whatever. Like that, that's part of the reason now. It's kind of that's what we've gotten into. And it's like, hey, we're in our tribe now. Like we're, we're going to claim Christianity. We're going to claim those things, but we're not actually going to do anything that's required of us. We're not actually going to push back darkness because that's scary and we might get hurt and people might not like us. And I think that potentially, I don't know how you segue away from abortion into any other topic, but I do want to talk to you about something that you brought up that seemingly not very many people talk about or think about, and that's Christian nationalism. Okay. So you actually had a blog on your website. I think you were actually uh, looking at a book or something like that, that you were doing a book review. I'll put the link in the show notes when I find it, but it's this quote here, quote, Christian nationalism, as it's defined by many evangelicals today, doesn't mean what you probably think it means. According to some of the biggest critics, 
Christian nationalism isn't merely a corrosive cultural framework held by fringe evangelicals. No, they say Christian nationalism is a destructive cultural framework held by most evangelicals. Okay. So talk a little bit about Christian nationalism because I was supposed to debate someone, um, over in the UK. I can't, I can't remember her name. It's, uh, Kristen something, something to blah, blah, blah. But anyway, it was a book called Jesus and John Wayne. And the uh, subtitle of the book was uh, how white evangelicalism has ruined a country and soured the church or something stupid like that. So yeah. reading this book made me want to jump out of the tallest building <laughs> off the top, off the roof of the tallest building all the time. And then this woman actually didn't even want to end up debating me. She wanted to do an interview because she wasn't prepared for the debate. Uh, so that can give you an idea of as to whether or not she likes to have her worldview challenged. Yeah. But why is Christian nationalism kind of the new buzzy thing to talk about for people? Oh man! So I again, I, I'm really enjoying this. This is this, these are great questions. Um, this is because, and this is you know one of the things I talk about when I mention the influence of critical race theory. Here, here's why this is a major issue within the church now, or at least some claim it is. Um, see, white nationalism is is something that they've been talking about. Critical race, sorry, critical race have been talking about for a while because um, of because of the all right and things like that, and. They figured out that an easy way, in the same way that they paint, because you, know, you know, a few years ago, and still to this day, but especially a few years ago, they were calling every conservative, every Trump voter, especially as a white nationalist. Mm-hmm. So they figured out, figured out that, that an easy way to try to shame Christian conservatives into wanting to rethink our worldview and into wanting to make us more uh, leftist is to convince us that our traditional biblical values is actually just Christian nationalism, which is essentially them saying we are all white Christian nationalists, that we've embraced a white supremacist uh, um, um, theology that, again, they call Christian nationalism. Because I mentioned in the the article you're referring to, the the authors of the book that I was reviewing, they say that essentially 80% of evangelicals, um, especially white evangelicals, are are um, Christian nationalists? They name people like Wayne Grudem and John Piper. <laughs> now, I, yeah, yeah, those two are just are, now. Look, even Piper, I have some big disagreements with, with Piper. I, I, I'm, I know he's a conservative, but I wouldn't even call him that conservative. Um, I would, you know, Wayne Grudem is just a traditional, basic, you know, evangelical conservative. But they're saying that because, again, if you are a conservative, and especially if you voted for Trump. You are a Christian nationalist, but many people, because they're afraid of that term nationalist, because they know it is it is uh, it is tied to white nationalism or white supremacy, they get very much afraid. And then, of course, you know what happened with the with the uh, January six um, um, you know issue, and they're trying to tie that into Christian influence because some of the people there were talking about you know wanting to be for their God and country, right? So that's what Christian nationalism is, and it's a very you know it's. It's very real Christian nationalism, real, it exists, uh, where you have people who really believe that, um, you know, basically some kind of a theocratic um, uh, movement where they believe that America is God's very unique nation and that, uh, you know, um, they, they want a, a essentially a European or white ethno state, things like that. It's very, very, very rare. I've looked into it. It's very, very fringe. Nevertheless, as always, they want to make that much more prominent looking within the church as a way to push their agenda. Well, I can put a bow on this Christian nationalism thing, and I can tell you exactly why we're even talking about it. And it's one word, Trump. 
That is the reason that we're talking about it because he is the orange boogeyman that we must fight against and people inside the church that hate him. And, And this is why I say that. And it's basically not disputable, even though I'm sure people would, except for this woman who's apparently scared to debate me. But they talk about how I forget what the percentage was. It was like 80 percent of white evangelicals or 90 percent of white evangelicals voted for Trump. And oh, isn't that horrible? But if you dig down and don't do a univariable analysis, you would know that almost the exact same percentage voted for Mitt Romney. Yep. who's the most milquetoast white guy maybe in the history of whiteness, right? And then before him, almost the exact same percentage of white evangelicals voted for John McCain. Yep. So you're basing your entire argument and your entire worldview on Trump bad. And I understand that Trump is an immoral man, yep. but he's representing and doing things and he governed in a way that was not immoral in a lot of ways. And yep. so and this is coming to a guy that voted for him once out of all three of the opportunities I had to vote for him. Mm-hmm. So I don't even like talking about Christian nationalism because it's like, this is so stupid. We don't need to talk about this anymore. There's way more important topics, which is how we're going to segue into this next thing. Obviously with Undaunted Life, we talk about manhood all the time. We talk about cultivating spiritual, mental, and physical resilience and how those are the cornerstones of what makes a, a godly and, and solid man. Mm-hmm. But for you, it's my understanding, unless I've gotten this wrong, that you grew up without a father. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So for you, being one of the, the multitude of people, every racial group except for Asians in, in this country, the, the there's this tremendous inequity with fatherlessness inside the home. For yeah. the black community in the last 50, 60 years, it's gone from you know around 15% to around 75%. For whites, it's gone from around 3% to around 30%. Fatherlessness mm-hmm. is rampant. It's not a race thing. It's a thing mm-hmm. thing, right? Mm-hmm. But for you, growing up without a father, mm-hmm. how do you think that that has affected how you have personally developed as a man? Oh, man. Um, you know, to be funny, not to be funny, um, but to be honest with you. You I can think, be funny. I don't care. I don't mind. <laughs> um, you know, I actually didn't realize how much of an impact it had on, it had on me until I started, started writing. Uh, one of the things with writing is it forced me to really think. Um, it forced me to think about how I see myself, how I see the world and how I see everything in my life. And as I started writing, I realized that when I wanted to be candid, I realized my insecurities um, that I didn't know that I had um, as a man because I didn't learn from a man um, growing up. And I also didn't realize how much, to be frank, a lot of my sins, and you know, especially sexual sins um, in the past, how a lot of that started because of my, of my uh, fatherlessness. For those who may not know, um, I don't always share this, but I think it's appropriate to share this here. As early as five years old, I was committing sexual sin, um, which is, you know, it's, it's shocking. It's, 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 um, it's, it's, uh, especially when I see, you know, five-year-olds in my life today, I'm like, man, how, well, how was I ever, um, you know, um, you know, at that age doing that? But that's really because my father wasn't home and therefore my mom wasn't home either. What I mean by that is she was forced to work two jobs. So then I was always home alone and then I saw things uh, growing up and that's an, I ended up trying to repeat those things as well. But I, it's it absolutely had a major, I was also very violent as well. I didn't graduate from high school uh, until actually just this past year, actually, when I ended up getting my, my diploma from high school. Uh, so it led me in a very, very bad path. It wasn't until I became a Christian um, that I understood um, you know, that I'm, I'm being adopted by God 
And then I ended up seeking, um, you know, um, older men to be mentored by. And especially even from afar, reading um, Spurgeon, reading uh, Martin Luther, reading uh, uh, John MacArthur, listening to John MacArthur, uh, Paul Washer, Vadi Bochum, all these men that I ended up trying to understand what it really means to be a, a man or a biblical man and, and wanting to emulate that in my life. Well, so that's an interesting thing for me because obviously I have a lot of men in my life that didn't have their father, don't know where their father is, or the father left with the secretary, never came back, like any number of things that could have happened, but but dad just wasn't there. The thing that's striking the most to me, Samuel, is when you look at the statistics, because everyone knows the statistics for the most part, is when dad's not around, you know, the grades go down, criminality goes up, like it has all these horrible downstream consequences. The interesting thing to me here is that data only describes whether dad is present, Mm. not whether dad is any good, mm -hmm. right? So the doting dad that's at every ball game and reads with their kid and prays with them every night is in the same category as the deadbeat that come home, comes home drunk, kicks the dog, and you know throws a bottle against the wall. Mm -hmm. Just dad being around. And also, the number of dads in a community mm -hmm. has an effect on yeah. that. There was their school, yeah. I believe it was in Louisiana. There was this spate of, of fights. There were these fist fights going on every single day. And this groups of dad, these groups of dads decided we're going to take shifts and we're just going to walk the halls of this high school yeah, and we're just yeah. going to be around. And to my knowledge, those men have not put hands on a single child to break them up and separate them from another person. Yeah. They're just around telling dad jokes. Hey, you better get to class. It looks like you're going to be late and you don't look that fast. You know, just stuff like that. Just yeah. being around is so important. And so th this kind of goes back to me because, you know, you are engaged now. I think that's kind of a, a new revelation for you in your life. But now mm -hmm. that you are engaged, Samuel, mm -hmm. does it scare you? Because you didn't grow up in a house to see what a godly marriage looked like. Neither did I, slightly different, different circumstances. Yeah. But does that scare you a little bit? That's that's a actually I don't I don't know if you if you're asking that question because you read one of my late one of my more recent articles. I, I don't think I caught it. No. Okay, so actually, um, it's, a, it's a fascinating um, I think it, it, topic. So I wrote an article a few weeks ago saying I am not afraid anymore, and it was mm -hmm. in relation to me uh, proposing to. Uh, my my now fiance. Uh, so those were my words to her when I uh, when I went on one knee. I said, "I'm not afraid anymore," and that was a reference to an article I wrote um, a few years ago, um, which was that I am afraid. And in the article, I'm really just talking about my fears um, over life and especially marriage because I, I grew up without a dad, and and I saw how my father leaving my mom, my mother, and myself, how that really hurt my mom and how that affected me. And I've been really worried. Um, about becoming like my dad. And because of that, I've just really been very much fearful of marriage. Well, that actually led to, that's that article is how I met my now fiance. She read that article, she commented on it, and then I re replied to her and then we just became friends and then we became a couple. So it's a pretty, and she's in Ohio and I'm in Toronto and um, it was a, uh, a crazy way to meet up. So then finally, when I ended up proposing to her, a few months ago, I said to her that, hey, I'm not afraid anymore. Um, and that's because through her, um, she's mentioned her dad and how her dad has had an influence on her. And I've been learning a lot from her dad. Her, her dad and I are, are pretty close. He's a biblical counselor. And he and I have talked a lot. And I've learned so much from him. And honestly, I've just really learned being a good father, being a good husband, is just being a good Christian. It's just being a good man. And that of course, I'm so showing things that I don't know that I, I, I am uh, sometimes a bit uneasy about, 
but I was just saying to her last night, actually, that I'm just I'm just confident that um, if I'm being faithful to God, I'll be faithful to her. You know, in a lot of marriages, and I'm not trying to give marriage advice because I'm I'm not, I'm not married. I, I don't want to be one of those guys who just gets married and then a week later they're writing, they're writing a yeah. you know a marriage book. But I've said that you know I've realized that um, especially in, in in older generations, not so much now, but a lot of marriages would stay together be, for for the kids, and um, that's not necessarily healthy, but it's still healthier than the alternative. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, if a lot of marriages stay together because they're saying well we we there's something bigger than us there is there are children that we need to be more committed to um and therefore we won't we won't um you know we won't uh, leave each other well then what about god what about us saying there's something bigger than us in this marriage and it's not the children it is actually god therefore by being faithful to god first we can be faithful to each other and commit to each other. And I was saying it's very encouraging knowing that if I'm just going to be a faithful follower of Christ, then I I, I can trust that I'll be a faithful uh, leader in the home as well. Again, what's your foundation as a man? Is your foundation some sort of secular confluence of all these different worldviews that you kind of like mold together and coalesce it into something that's vaguely moral? Yeah. Or is it true and actual morality, right? Yeah. And, and I would say as well, uh, you know, we've talked about Vody Bach and we mentioned him a few times on this podcast, but he has a book that, a lesser known book called Family Shepherds. And, you know, so the guy that actually connected connected me and you, Ryan Horn, he's he's one of the guys that's one of our inner circle here. You know, he turned me onto that book and he, and he turned me onto your work. And that all comes together because if you focus on being a, a good Christian, it's really, really, really hard to be a bad dad and to be a bad husband. It's really difficult. Kind of like I tell that this is a little bit crass, but I think people understand. So, so people that know my story, like part of my past is looking at pornography and masturbating. And that hasn't been a part of my life in a very, very long time. But I tell people all the time, they're like, how do I stop doing this? I'm like, well, the easiest way to stop looking at porn and jerking off is to don't look at porn. <laughs> and then and and the other thing is, is because, or make the decision, I'm not going to masturbate anymore because yeah. you're not watching porn for the acting skill. You're watching it to get somewhere. You're using people, right? At, at, so that you can get, find some sexual release. But for a lot of people, it's like, they're focusing on the wrong thing. It's like, focus on being a good person, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, but not beyond that because good is super relative. Focus on being a godly person. And that's mm -hmm. how we can get to some sort of an idea as to like, mm -hmm. that's how you become a good father. That's mm -hmm. how you become a good husband. It's all downstream of that one lifestyle decision being marinated in the gospel. Um, mm -hmm. This next thing I brought up, I just kind of threw it in my notes. It kind of feels haphazard at this point to even talk about it because we could have spent the entire time talking about this subject because you've actually given quite a bit of thought to it. But it's the LGBTQ plus stuff and how it specifically is is inside the church as well. Mm -hmm. Again, bringing it up towards the end of interviews a little bit unfair, but it's a nefarious thing. You know, word of the day, nefarious. It's it's a thing that's scary mm -hmm. to me to see so many people inside the church. I think uh, you know, a little while ago on iTunes, the number one song was by a, a either a lesbian Christian singer. The number one worship song on the worship charts, a Christian worship song charts, was either it was either a transgender person or a lesbian, wow. kind of talking about God's love and all these different things. And, and it becomes this crazy issue. And I know there are some denominations that are very very accepting of LGBTQ. They don't see it as a sin. They just see it as something that you know we have to deal with and it's part of God's creation. But I, I guess that's the worst way possible to tee up a question. But LGBTQ plus the church, why is it such a big deal, Samuel? Yeah. Well, one, it's not an unfair question at all. It's a very, uh, it's a very relevant question. Why is it an issue? Um, it ties back to 
a lot of us not wanting to agree with the Bible. Um, that's what it comes down to. Uh, I had um, I got an email from someone uh, a few months ago, and they were saying, Sam, I'm really struggling with this, you know, gay marriage thing. Um, this is a, a woman who's who's saying to me, she just feels bad that some of her coworkers um, are, are are gay, and she can't, and that she can't, you know, she's struggling as a Christian to not want to, you know, support them. She said it just feels wrong that why is it okay that straight people can get married, but then gay people can't get married and everything else. It just seems she just wants to love them. And I said to her, wait a minute here, wait a minute. What you're really saying is you think you can love them more than God does. And you need to repent um, because God's word, uh, when it's when it talks about um, the, the nature of sexuality, talks about how it should be only be between a man and a woman. It's saying that because God loves his God loves humans. God loves people. God loves sinners. And um, I'll, I'll say I just say to my my, my fiance uh, earlier that I'm so glad that her and I have waited um, for, for for marriage because uh, to be you know to be frank <laughs> I have something to look forward to. I'm really looking forward to being with her. And then mm-hmm. if I had sinned uh, with her, I, I I just say I just don't know. I mean, of, now I, I don't want to be—I uh, don't want to offend anybody who has sinned. So long as people have repented, um, I know that some people fall. I, I mean, I—I as I said before, I've sinned uh, obviously um, before I started pursuing uh, my uh, my my fiance. So I know that some people, even when um, they are with their fiancés, they they sin, and then if they repented, God redeems all that. God is good, and they can have a good marriage still. But I'm just very very grateful that. Uh, we will have um, a, um, you know, I think a, a better marriage in, in, in our situation because we did, we did not sin together in that manner. Nevertheless, I'm saying that because I see God's love in 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 His Word, in that it's better for us if we follow Him um, and, and, and follow His words when it comes to um, sexuality. In the same way, for people who are, um, you know, who are homosexual or transgender. We think that God is harming them many times, not me and you, but many people in the church think that was well, unfair. Well, no, God is saying that because it's better for them to not be sinning in so many different ways, including that they will not be living in unrepentant sin and then be going to hell over that. Right. It's a loving thing to warn people in repentance. But in our thinking, we think it's actually better um, if we lie to people. Like I mentioned before about lying to black people, um, you know, thinking that we're being anti-racist, but we're lying to um, to the uh, to gay and and trans people uh, by saying, well, it's okay, It's all right. And then they end up being uh, perishing over that. So uh, anyway, go back to your question about why this is a thing. I think it's because many of us are just choosing not to believe the Bible. We're choosing to say that, well, we think we're more loving than God. Or we think that it's better for people if they live in sin and then uh, and then it be held accountable by God uh, in judgment. That's one of the things that I feel like is really difficult for me to understand is why people categorize love in the way that they do. Mm. Because, they, again, they are saying that they're loving these people by allowing it. But the, if, if I were a cutter, let's say, let's say I, I cut myself on a regular basis and had to go to the hospital a few times, how mm. loving would it be to tell me that that's an okay behavior? 
right? That's an okay thing for me to do. Or how loving would it be to tell me that, yeah, you know what? You're, you're frustrated. And the way that you take out your frustration is you cheat on your wife. Like nobody would say that that's a good moral thing to do, but we've, as a lot of Christians, it's like, in order for us to be loving, we're not allowed to be judging, but mm-hmm. that's just, that's not really the, the way that we're supposed to really look at these things. And again, I kind of gave short shrift to that subject. You know, that just means I'll have to have you on again at some point here in the future. And we can talk more about some of these other big topics. But yeah. another thing that's interesting about your story is that you're actually, uh, you're actually originally from Ghana. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And so you immigrated to the West, right? Yeah. Yes. So, so when did, when did you immigrate to Canada? Um, when I was 10 years old. So okay. 10 years the, old. Yeah. So, so for a good chunk of your life, you spent in Africa and then, you know, for the majority of your life since then you've been in the West. Yeah. Now here's the deal, Sam. I've been reliably informed that Western countries are the most racist ones. Okay. Now here in America, I don't know if you knew this, but we apparently send out roving gangs of highly lethal kill squads, otherwise known as the police to (laughs) hunt down and kill black people. Right. So my question, this is a sincere question. I hope you can tell by my face. Why would you subject yourself to such danger by immigrating to a Western country? Why would you do that? Are you crazy? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, you know, People, I find, honestly, I find white people fascinating. By white people, I, I really mean just Western people and, and just their, a lot of times, their ridiculous views on America or Canada or the West in that they're so privileged, they don't realize their privilege in that there are parts of the world where we we beg and hope for police. We don't, like, being a victim of a crime in Ghana and calling for the police? What? So here's the thing. Um, in Ghana, there's a very serious problem of mob justice there. Mm-hmm. In that when I was a kid, when I was about six, seven years old, I saw um, armed robbers, thieves being burned alive. I saw them. And you can only imagine what that does to a, you know, a, a kid doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, seeing that. But the reason why it's so common there for them to kill criminals, or at least supposed criminals, because uh, we don't know, so it, it could be a false accusation, mm-hmm. is because the cops there are terrible and that there are not that many good cops there. So in this nation, I am glad that you actually have a police because it's a privilege to have that. It really is. Not every part of the world has that. I don't, don't want to defund them. They should be more funded, actually. Um that's actually the biggest problem with cops, that there's actually not enough funding or enough training uh, mm-hmm. for them. And, and it's not um, them, you know, uh, them having way too much training or way too much uh, funding. So no, I, look, I oftentimes say this. It's not lost on me that many years ago, some of my distant relatives were forced out of Africa and they were forced over the uh, over the Atlantic Ocean to come to the West. And now my mother and I were happy and just gleefully traveling over the Atlantic Ocean that our distant authors did not want to ever see. My people in the past did not ever want to see the Atlantic Ocean, but I was happy to see it because I was coming to um, the West. Now, you know, in Ghana, we call the West Abrochi, and it's like the faraway place is what it means. And as a kid, I honestly thought it was just a place under heaven. You know, I I guess in some ways I was a flat earther, I guess. And I yeah, yeah. that. Well, it's up there, so it's just right above heaven. I mean, right under heaven, I mean. And that's because I knew it was a much more prosperous and peaceful place than what I was growing up um, in, which is extreme poverty. So people don't realize, I still have relatives who would die 
to who would do anything they can to come to the West because of the peace and prosperity we have here. And yet many people are shaming um, the West. And it's not it's not a racist. I've trust me, I've seen there's much more racism in, in Ghana than there is here in that it's a different kind of racism in that it's more tribal. Uh, but you have that there. We have we had slave owners in, in Ghana. My people were oppressed by the, the bigger tribe in Ghana. Ghana actually has a very a huge history of selling slaves as well. To this day, you still have slavery in Ghana. It's very prominent there. So um, anyway, I'm kind of probably going off topic, but uh, the idea that the West is this oppressive nation, uh, at least against immigrants or black people, is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it's hard for people to understand. And it's interesting. I'm glad that you actually said that the level of racism that exists all over the planet, it's almost as if we're all sinful beings and we do crappy things to other sinful beings, right? It's almost like we look at people based on their immutable characteristics and not who they were created in the image of God. But for you specifically, in the long term, you mentioned you're in Toronto, your fiance is in Ohio. What's kind of the long term plans uh, for you guys as you become one flesh and, and, you know, start your marriage and start your family and all those different things? Because I know living in Canada, you have, you know, Justin Trudeau, how is he a thing? I have no idea how he's a thing. Uh, you have this crazy COVID policy, which, you know, you know, comparing it to the American COVID policy, I mean, it looks like a cakewalk down here compared to what y'all are dealing with up north. I mean, there's there's Mounties, there's syrup, and there's moose, but what else do you have in Canada? Are you going to come to America? Is that what we're doing? Come on, man. We need you here. <laughs> well, you're very gracious. I don't think you guys need me, uh, but I need America, and I'm moving there. Uh, that's the plan. So Lord willing, um, we're getting married. As of right now, the plan is April, um, and um, I'll be moving there uh, in April, Lord willing. Okay, very good. Now, if you're moving to Ohio, there's some good hunting around there. So I don't know if you uh, grew up hunting or if you've done any of that, but I mean, that's something that you should get into. There's some monsters out there. I'm African. Um, I, I didn't do any kind of hunting, um, but but I absolutely look forward to that. I Man, I, I just started shooting um, uh, last year. Um, you know, so I'm one of those Canadians who had no idea what to do with guns before, but now I'm just uh, getting into that. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to hunting. I, I can't wait. I know people there who love hunting, so I'll be, uh, I'll be uh, behind them uh, learning the ropes. Well, I'll be excited for that because I'm the guy that didn't grow up hunting at all, but I wanted to learn as an adult, so I had to have something to pass down to my sons. So I'm, I have one son now and one son on the way, so I'm going to be uh, totally squared away on that. But Samuel, as we roll to the end here, I do a section at the end of my podcast with certain guests. It's a segment called, What Would You Say to Someone That Said? So I'm going to say that. What would you say to someone that said, and I'm going to fill in the blank. Okay. Here's the deal. You get 30 seconds or maximum to respond to whatever I say. So if it's a big topic, a small topic, I don't care. This is just meat and potatoes. Okay. So what would you say to someone that said, are you up for it? Yep. Okay. Let's get it. Let's go into the first one. What would you say to someone that said, there is no such thing as cosmic justice. So we was, so we must fight for social justice. I would say then, then, then that leaves room for all manner of, of injustice because then there's no standard. Then it's all subjective. And therefore, then anyone can do whatever they want against the other person. All right. So you're doing just fine. Let's go into the next one. What would you say to someone that said, theology is too difficult for me to understand? Um, that's impossible. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a high school dropout. I didn't finish college. And yet, um, I think I'm able to hold my own a little bit um, in theology. Anyone, anyone can do fine. Um, our, our, our Lord is a carpenter. Um, you, you, theology, you can, you can do it. Just, just read certain books, and you'll be fine. Absolutely. What would you say to someone that said abortion is not immoral in some circumstances? Abortion is always not just immoral, just, just pure evil. 
Abortion always is in the intentional killing of a defenseless preborn baby. Um, I, I encourage every single person um, you know, who's listening to this to, to check out, just look for an aborted fetus and they will see for themselves how evil abortion is. All right. What would you say to someone that said, the Bible is filled with fables and myths from thousands of years ago. We shouldn't use it to tell us how to live today. That's a lie. Um, the Bible, um, for generations, people have tried to go against the Bible and they can never uh, defeat it. Uh, the Bible is is is, um, is the infallible, authoritative, inerrant, inspired word of God. It's full of prophecies and it's full of truth. Uh, and what they're saying is uh, it's, it's not true. What would you say to someone that said, all white people are racist, either covertly or overtly? <laughs> That's a lie. Uh, that is actually racist uh, as well, too. And um, I, I won't have any. And if that's the case, and it would mean then that my Lord willing, my uh, my um, my uh, my my children would also then be half racist, too, which makes no sense. And hopefully if we ever get down to reparations, your one half of your kids will have to pay the other half of your kid right inside the same person. I'm not sure how that's going to work, but they're smart. They'll figure it out. What yeah. would you say to someone that said, I'm afraid to speak out about my beliefs because I'm afraid of getting canceled? Um, you'd be canceled for not speaking anyway, so you might as well uh, speak and then risk being canceled. Uh, if you're a Christian, um, you will be hated, you'll be persecuted. Uh, so speak the truth and um, and you know and fear fear God, not men. All right, there's a couple more left here. What would you say to someone that said Reformed Baptists and Calvinists are way more concerned about being right and not about loving people? Being right includes uh, loving people means being also includes being right. Um, now I think there are times where I don't think it's a Calvinist thing. I think everybody sometimes wants to be more right than righteous, but I think as a whole, um, um, Calvinists very much care about the doctrines of grace. And I think for the, I think people tend to over, over, uh, state that issue. I think that, uh, it's not unique to, uh, to, uh, Calvinists or reformed people. Okay. Last question of the day. What would you say to someone that said racism is the unforgivable sin? Um, there is no unforgivable sin except for denying, uh, Jesus Christ and, um, it is absolutely not. I've been racist before um, against uh, different kinds of people. We, in many ways, we all probably have, but God is good and God is gracious and uh, every sin can be forgiven. Well, Samuel, I got to say, I think we may have set an Undaunted Life of Man's podcast record with the most number of topics talked about in a single interview. So we have gone everywhere in this conversation. I really appreciate all the time, but that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Uh, no, I just really enjoyed this. Uh, thank you for having me. It was a good time, man. Samuel Say, thank you so much for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. There you go, guys. And hey, I'm not even going to say I hope you enjoyed my time with Samuel Say because here's the deal. I say that with a lot of guys, but if you're still listening right now, I know that you enjoyed it because it was awesome. I definitely know that it was. Before we let you guys go, though, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. And specifically, we do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a bunch of links for you today. The main one is to Samuel's website. It's slowtowrite.com. And then most of the blogs, I think I got them all, that he mentioned or that I mentioned with questions inside this episode, those are going to be there as well. So you can check all those links out. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate, and leave a positive review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. And you can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. We also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our contract. 
for our content, rather, the intro outro track on this podcast is their song, Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album, Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.